Welcome to Hummingbird, a weekly conversation about identity, Celtic and Métis, healing and wellness, the spirit of place, and the pull of mystery. We linger in conversation about things at the center of our creative work and life. We respectfully acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the treaty and traditional territories of many nations, including the Anishinaabeg, the Michisagig Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Wendat peoples. These lands are now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and are covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Williams Treaty, treaties to peaceably share and protect this land through friendship and respect. We thank those who have cared for this land, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live here and connect through conversation. Hi, Catherine. Here we are after a little break of a couple of weeks, back at it again, engaging in conversation. And I have to say, I was listening to an audio book recently, and and maybe it was one by John O'Donohue, Walking in Wonder, I think it was. And I was finishing the last part of the book, and he co-wrote it with an author named John Quinn. And he said, when was the last time you had a really great conversation? And I thought of you instantly, and I thought of us gathering together to do this, and I thought, this is what I love about this, is that opportunity to have a really great conversation with you and then to invite listeners in to join us. Oh, Jessica, that's so good to hear. So good to hear your voice. And I know that quote as well, too. And the same thing when I first heard it, I thought of us as well. So uh, a synchronicity is already at work. And that's not as a surprise for us, is it? <laughs> not at all. And I, I find the seasons really impact conversation too, right? And right now we're in the middle of winter, and there's nothing like a nice fireside chat. So maybe today we can imagine we're here talking to you from Canada. It is a snowy day, so it looks like we're in the middle of a snow globe. The snow is falling. Imagine the fireplace is lit. You've got a cup of your favorite hot bevy. And I do feel like conversation, thinking in metaphor, is its own fire, is its own warmth, and can give us that glow and that connect, which makes us feel more human and connected to not only to each other, but to others and to everything that's living on this earth. I had the opportunity to get out of the winter for a bit, so I'm re-emerging into the winter. And yes, it's snowy here in Toronto coming and going with snow. And at one point earlier in the day, the flakes were those big, huge, fluffy ones. So I have to say it wasn't sand and it wasn't sun, but it had its own beauty. And I was just watching them fall. And there's something really mesmerizing, much like a fire is mesmerizing to stare at, but just to look up at snow falling and trying to keep your eye on one and how you just get lost into the next one and the next one. And that sense of snow being a verb, being a noun and how snow is could be 
what is snow one flake? Is it a thousand flakes? I mean, there's so much in that word as well. And I'm looking forward to actually exploring a poem titled Snow. Speaking of snow, we're going to talk about some snow poems as well. One of the things I love about the snow, other than all the fun things you can do in the snow, from the snow angels to the snow people to the snow forts, I love all of that. But I also love the two things, the quiet the snow brings. When you have a blanket of snow covering an area, it brings in a quiet that is different than when the snow is gone. And the second thing I really love that the snow brings in at this time of year is is because it's so bright and so white, it reflects the light. So there's a lot more light than usual. And if the sun is shining and we've had a fresh snowfall and the skies are otherwise clear, I find that my sunglasses are, are a necessity because it can be blinding. And what a gift that is during days that are shorter and where it can feel a little darker in January, February, really... This, this kind of continues until about mid-March and then you start to feel the warmth a bit again once in a while and then it goes back to the cold a bit again and you don't really totally settle into warmth here in southern Ontario until maybe late April. Then you know it's here to stay but you can still get these good blizzards and storms right up to mid-April. It's interesting how that works. It's, not, it's almost like the seasons are fighting each other to, to sort of uh, persist and that change and I think that that can also be a reflection of how we can resist and fight change, but the change will eventually take over. And we do eventually go from winter to spring. And, and then our spring seems so short. I, I, I love the spring, but I, I find that often there's sort of that skip to, to spring to summer. And <laughs> and uh, I'm envious of people who have extended springs in the West Coast, because I think that's just so marvelous to th- see the slow unfolding of things rather than the quick bloom and things falling. And then we're into the heat of summer, but I'll take any warmth coming. And you're absolutely right about the quietness that snow brings. I was in Yellowknife once and walking in the nature areas there, and I have never experienced such silence as I have in Yellowknife. And I really did appreciate that sense of snow being so much part of that. And the quiet was was its own presence in a way that I had never experienced before. There's always something new around the corner and we just have to open our eyes and see what we find when we're there. And how is your creativity and your writing in winter? Is this a good time of year for you to write? That's a really good question because I do find actually in that world of going inside and then from going inside into to other layers of that within, I do find that I it is good for my writing time and also forces me to go into deeper levels with the writing and in ways that I I don't in summer. Once I get into that space, I do appreciate that deepening that I can experience with going into deeper places within my writing. So yeah, it actually is something that I do value about the winter season is the writing experience that I have during that time. What about you? Same. I find I read more. I write more. I'm home more. I love that piece. And and I wonder if part of it is just that hibernation and the gift that that brings to uh, being an artist and being a writer. I always look forward to winter because I have a steady routine with work. Whereas in the summer, because I'm an educator, I do have some time off in the summer. So my routine isn't quite there. So I might be up on Georgian Bay for a couple weeks and then home. And so I don't have the same rhythm. But by the time January rolls around, 
around. It's usually by January. The busyness of the fall has completely faded. The holidays and their busyness has faded. And then I move into this time between January 1st and, and really the spring break in the middle of March is just really a lovely time to rest, to reset, to put a pause on going out. There's really no need to leave. And then when I do that, as I feel rested, then those little creative ideas start popping up and, oh, what if I tried this? And, oh, that's really great. Um, that happened to me this morning. I uh, I wrote something in my journal this morning and it was the last line of, of what I wrote. I can't remember what it is now, but I went, oh my gosh, that is a great title for a poem. I'm going to have to use that to then tomorrow to then enter into a poem about that. So I love that about this time of year. I think that's it, trying to find the positive spin on anything. And in that sense of being quiet, the gifts that quiet can give us. And it makes me think of this poem by Louis McNeese titled Snow. I came across this poem many years ago and can't not help falling more and more in love with it. We've talked about favorite poems before, and this one was on the list for me as well. And I just am so charmed by this poem. And I experience gift after gift. And I often use it in the classroom too. And I love what students bring to it, which is also new insights in different ways the words and the imagery can work. So yeah, snow. And this is Louis McNeese, a Northern Irish poet, of course, who's no longer with us. The room was suddenly rich and the great bay window was spawning snow and pink roses against it, soundlessly collateral and incompatible world is suddener than we fancy it. World is crazier and more of it than we think. Incorrigibly plural, I peel and portion a tangerine and spit the pips and feel the drunkenness of things being various. And the fire flames with a bubbling sound for world is more spiteful and gay than one supposes on the tongue, on the eyes, on the ears, and the palms of one's hands. There is more than glass between the snow and the huge roses. So much happening in this poem. Thank you so much for bringing so this much in happening. for us to read. So much mm. happening. It's 12 lines, 12 lines. And it's just incredible to me how much energy and force and beauty and complexity and dialectical energy is within this poem. And to me, it really encapsulates the sense of mystery and the way that mystery has its own presence through things connecting and in that connection, being part of each other, but also being separate. And the sounds, the sounds, even when you think about snow and roses, they're so different. And yet at the same time, there are similarities between them. When you think about snow from the flake and the individual flake, it's it's almost like its own flower. And then roses and the way that they are like fractals one after another. And then the sense of the pieces of the roses like petals and the pieces of the each snowflake being its own thing. And then the sounds of rose and snow with the O sound. So they're, they're musically connected. I think of them when sounds of words are connected sonically, I think of them belonging to like the same family. So there's all of these sort of forces working off one another. And you're just brought into it. I love how you talked about being in a room with a fire because this this poem just kind of encapsulates that sense of being alone with the world and looking out at the world and seeing the world and experiencing it through through glass. And the way that McNeese starts this poem with the room was suddenly rich 
and the great bay window was and that's the first line so right away you're 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 sensed with a a happening within the speaker and then the great bay window just sounds so regal and beautiful and bay windows are i've always i've always loved bay windows but when we get to that second line was spawning snow and until i had read this poem i never thought of snow as spawning and i thought what a fantastic word for that that's the thing about i love about poetry is that finding that word that wouldn't work anywhere else but doesn't a poem and then just just pops the poem and and makes the magic even more heightened so i mean I, you can cl- clearly hear all the energy i have about this poem jessica i could just lose myself in it again and again and and he's having fun with words because we go from suddenly and then we have this world is suddener than we fancy it and i just love the playfulness of suddener and it kind of stuns you a bit because you're like what is that a word where am i and i think that that too can kind of enact that sense of where am i experience that we can have these in these quiet moments as you mentioned with the silence and the way that we connect more to our inner selves i can continue but i'll just stop and say (laughs) what are some things that uh hit you with this poem Mm. Well, one of the things I've been doing lately when I enter into relationship with anything is is thinking about what are the lessons here? What can I learn from this? And apart from the, the, the beautiful craft and the beautiful way that it's written, I'm really, when I'm thinking about the lessons, I'm looking at the lessons within the story. Right away with the room being suddenly rich and the great bay window and that first line, an idea of an abundance is is introduced. That's the richness that I saw anyways, especially with the title being snow, because you can imagine, you can imagine that because when there isn't snow on the ground in winter, everything looks really sparse and lonely and empty. And then all of a sudden you might wake up and there's a snowfall, or you might look away from whatever you're doing and look out and the snow has fallen and the space is filling up. And these little tiny pieces coming down from the sky fill so many spaces and accumulate and grow. Like I think today we're supposed to get five to 10 centimeters. And then with the the way like you spoke to this with the snow and the pink roses and that contrast around the conditions that are required for each of them to live. So for the snow to exist, it requires to be outside or in refrigeration somewhere where it is very cold. And for the rose to exist, they they need somewhere that is more temperate, somewhere that is warmer, access to sun. And then depending on the temperature, the sun can harm the snow, but the sun can also help the, the rose or the water can harm the snow, but it can help the rose. And so for me, the learning that I pull from this poem, just even in the first two lines, is just thinking about how we are like that reminder that we're all surrounded by abundance all of the time. We just have to be open to seeing it. How can two things that are so distinct, like snow and roses, coexist in the same sight line? Well, that's all about the glass. The glass is what allows that to happen. And what a what what a wonderful thing that we that we have access to windows so we can have the roses inside with us and the snow falling outside. And yet when the snow is falling like that, you feel like you're you're part of it. You feel like that you're you're in like I like I said right at the beginning, I feel like I'm in a snow globe today. So I'm both inside and outside at the same time. And yet 
I'm not harmed by the cold conditions or the dampness. I'm nice and cozy in here. So really, really interesting in terms of those images and what they can teach us. And of course, I love to the tangerine because that is often a thought that I have about winter. And it reminds me of that, that exercise that I've often done when I used to, to teach more often was where you pass around the little clementines to everybody and guide them through a sensory experience and then invite everybody in the, in the class or the workshop to write a piece from the experience of having very slowly and mindfully opening up a clementine, smelling it, watching the juice squirt, doing doing all the feeling what it's like when you first take that first bite into that juiciness. And then when everybody in the group writes a piece and reads it out, you realize that even though we had a shared experience, everybody's creative piece was completely different. And there's yet another example of abundance and distinctiveness and some of those pieces that you talked about in terms of the qualities of the the snowflakes, which, oh my gosh, then then the qualities of the fire flames. So there is certainly a lot in this poem to linger in. And uh, I'm just so grateful. I've not read this one before. And I'm just so grateful that you you brought this in. And thank you for that. You're welcome, Jessica. And that's the abundance that you mentioned with the, the sharing of, of something that you love. And not necessarily that means that the person that you share it with is going to feel the same way. But I'm so pleased that you do as well, because well, of course you would, right? <laughs> I love uh, so much of what you said as well. And connecting with that tangerine, the way that we have moved in scale as well with words like world and thinking about world as earth and earth is round. And then when we have the tangerine, something that we can hold in our hand, that same shape, and then the sense of it going inside it and getting into the origin of where that shape came from by the pips and I love that word pips that they use in the UK for for pits we usually say the tangerine pit but they the beautiful spiky sounds of spit the pips you know it just it's just it just enacts that whole sense of of spitting them and and feel the drunkenness of things being various I was so blown away when I first read that the drunkenness of things being various and I just it still gives me shivers and I think about that sense of what that is and how how that line just encompasses so much of all the complexity that we that we work with particularly as poets and trying to sort of give it a space to be engaged with and to have the then reader engage with it as McNeese is letting us engage with it and yet not having to feel that we have to get an answer but just the words to engage with what that experience is. Mm -hmm. Then when we move to the ending of the poem, when I even think about how the punctuation works through this poem, I know our readers can't see it, but there's this lovely run of no commas or dashes where McNeese has the last line. Well, I guess the second to last line, even before where he says, on the tongue, on the eyes, on the ears, and the palms of one's hands, and then one dash, there is more than glass between the snow and the huge roses. And that I just love that run of on the tongue, on the eyes, on the ears. It's just like it's 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 the energy then of everything being blended together and no separation as well. And that's the interesting thing to me about how poems can work sonically and, and through the ear and then also visually when you see them on the page as well. And the gifts of processing from both directions at once is its own drunkenness, I think, as well of, of things being various. And I think that that sense, as you say, of glass being that, that space between and how glass 
glass is such a metaphor for so much that we can't touch but can feel because this poem to me is also about feeling and we were talking about feelings the other week as well so any any uh, line in particular that really stands out for you or anything that you wanted to say about one particular part of the poem I know you have already but I wondered if there was something else to to linger on as you said mm, I really loved the musicality of on the tongue on the eyes on the ears and the palms of one's hands I really love that and 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 that line is is between two dashes right so two so there's yeah. two stops and then that line with with the the movement in it what I really love is just to bring it back to the art of being an artist and a writer is is it's a simple moment it's an experience that I think many people can relate to of just sitting in a moment and looking out the window and recognizing you're both inside and outside your energy is here and it's there that the poem brings to life the magic of a simple moment. It also demonstrates and names the drunkenness of things being various and how we are all different. And even though we may have all sat and looked out the window, um, <laughs> the way we would <laughs> enter into that as a prompt, for example, mm. would be really different. And so we don't always have to leave our house and go somewhere to find what we need to write about, to, to be profound and to move people or to inspire people. Sometimes it's just as simple as as looking out your window. And it reminds me of the artist from um, Nova Scotia. Is it Maude Lewis? Yes. And how her yes. world was so small. Yes. Right? She had a very small world in terms of even a tiny home and stayed in that one community for so many years. And yet the abundance of what she could see within that small space was unbelievable. And and I feel the same way about Emily Dickinson. She's another mm -hmm. one like that who, yes. who really didn't travel far, who really didn't have a big outside life. And yet the gifts that she brought in terms of seeing the, the universal moments we all experience, she could see them so clearly. And, and that is just so incredible too. So I, I think of that with this poem, this poem kind of captures that for me too. And I'll have to check out more by this poet just to to see if, if everything is like this, or if this is just a really great day. Well, I have to say, uh, he's quite remarkable. And I think you're in for more treats when you read Louis McNeese. He's, he's got remarkable ability to bring the magic to the page. I would love to jump in and share a winter poem with you. Mm -hmm. And and again, I think in some ways it, it communicates. So this is one from my book, The Thing with Feathers. And it was inspired by something my mom always used to say. And my grandma, Laura, was grandmother lonely too. In winter, your grandma always said you could not even see a dog walk the road. Mom explained again at her childhood home by the solid river, lined with crisp satin branches, coated ceramic trunks. Near these woods, Grandma didn't want to stop by. Years in the two-story house, Grandpa built on crown land, away from the city, making ends meet, making jobs from cakes to cabins for fishermen. Four children over a decade, she passed time with cards and pies and black flies, Maybe grandma didn't have time to walk that one and only road unless to borrow a neighbor's phone or church on Sunday. Mom said my grandmother hid from thunderstorms in her closet. Yet grandma knew how to read the world outside, her playing cards inside, through the bedroom vent to the candlelight kitchen. Pieces of her story unraveled through time to here, 
Now only her spirit visits for tea and toast on rainy afternoons when the lights flash. It's hard to learn more about her this way. Thank you, Jessica, for that beautiful reading. Again, we've talked about how there's conversations, obviously, between both of us, and then there's conversations between the poems that we talk about. And it's so interesting to sort of the sense of inner and outer and the sense of time and connection and the way that these expressions that loved ones, they're like little seeds again. They're like the the pips that uh, are left when they are no longer with us that seed our thoughts and, and our connections and sometimes they grow. I mean, there, there's that sense of wanting this connection and wondering, was grandmother lonely too? And, and how she moved through the world. And with these pieces, I often find when we can't fill them in because we don't have the other pieces, but we do have the imagination and we do have our sense of intuition and knowing and how that can also be activated to give us more of what that little expression is for how the person did move through the world. And it's really interesting to me how the poem ends. It's hard to learn more about her this way. I find that that is one of those unexpected endings, if that makes sense, because it's subtly done, but yet it's such a charged line. And that word hard, I I think really resonates as well. And her spirit and also the hardness of not knowing and the complexity that 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 brings to the poem. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this poem, Jessica. Thanks, Catherine. Well, this always haunted me, this saying, you could not even see a dog walk the road. So my mom grew up and I've got a great picture of mom standing out on the side of the road in a massive snowbank taller than her. So between uh, in a little small town along a river called Brit now, It's between Perry Sound and Sudbury in Ontario. It was so vacant there in wintertime. It was was a bustling place in summer with fishermen and tourists and different things. But it was so vacant that that not even a dog would walk the road on a snowy day. It wasn't grandma's first choice to live there. They did not have an easy life there. It kind of leads you down different things. So then what did they do, right? What, What sort of things, how did they pass their time? And how can I figure out what their lives were were like. And I think for me, this is one of those poems that filters in some of their Métis lifestyle a little bit as well. And just even thinking about land. And that was another thing that we was always said in the house was that when he grandpa married grandma, he just built the house on crown land. They did their best to make ends meet. She did. She baked a lot of, of pies and she played a lot of cards. The line about borrowing a neighbor's phone. I heard that story. So these are all little snippets of stories mm-hmm. and lines that you hear, right? Too. Mm-hmm. Growing yeah. up, you hear a line yeah. here, you hear a line here and then you're trying to piece them together to figure out who is this person and my grandpa they were switching their chimney over and again this to me ties to that idea of winter and warmth and they were switching their chimney from maybe from being coal or from wood to coal or something or I I'm not quite sure but they were switching their whole fireplace and he went over to somewhere where there was an abandoned chimney with some friends and they were taking the bricks because they couldn't afford the bricks to do the work that he wanted to do and this was Uh, I think it was just before my mom was born, but my aunts and uncle my aunts and my uncle were alive and they remember this day and and the chimney fell on his arm and he ended up losing his arm but they didn't have a phone and so my grandma had to leave the kids unattended at home and told them don't move don't do anything and run down the road to borrow a neighbor's phone to see if they could borrow another neighbor to have a car to drive them an hour to the hospital and so like it was it wasn't an easy an easy life and she was a very super 
superstitious person, apparently, like mom told me stories about her hiding in thunderstorms. So you hear that. And then as a (laughs) child, you go, well, why was she afraid? Well, I don't know. Okay. Like, I don't know. She just was. Okay. But you want to know more, right? You're always Mm -hmm. craving more. And grandma was also known. She played a lot of cards, but she would also play a lot of, like, she could read her cards. So she would use playing cards and she could she was very highly intuitive and in the playing cards, she knew everything about everyone. So nobody could get away with anything. And and again, you hear these snippets of stories, but I would love to go back and ask her, well, what did you see in the playing cards? How did you do that? Like, where, where did you learn that grandma? Like, what is, what is this piece in their house? My mom's childhood home, they had a vent that went from the bedroom upstairs that you could spy on people down below in the kitchen. And I remember even as a child, I've had my own turn at that. And so they would often do that. So, you know, so you start, I started thinking about, well, maybe that's a way to learn more about what her life was like. Is there a way I can spy? (laughs) (laughs) And so within this poem, like certainly like there's just, there's a lot, right? There's a lot of family stories and insider information that's really for me as a poet that maybe wouldn't always translate out in the same way. And that's, that's part of the work too. And this was a poem I wrote for for me and for my relationship with her and even the idea of the lights flashing I remember as a kid if the lights flashed and we were all sitting at the table or something was happening oh that was grandma someone would say well how do you know so again I always had these questions never really fully had all the information that I I wanted and and just so desperately wanted to get to know her So, so she passed away probably when I was three or four years old maybe four and so I didn't really get to know her well my, my my grandpa passed away when I was the year I was born on his birthday. And then she wow. passed away, of, of, you know, not too long after that. And my my parents were also quite young at the time. I, I do have memories of my grandma. I remember her visiting and playing solitaire with her, but she called it Beat the Devil. And she was a beautiful baker and baked cupcakes. She made my mom's wedding dress. My mom could pick out anything in the catalog and my grandma could make it for her. She was just a very talented seamstress. So that's how they made ends meet is she took these talents. She baked cakes for people. She sewed clothes for people. They did all sorts of things. And then certainly grandpa did the best that he could, but medicine wasn't the way it is today. So it was it wasn't easy having one arm in those days to navigate, but he did. So my nephew went ice fishing, he's trying to reconnect with the land, we were all having like a family group chat, he was telling us about it. My mom said, Do you know that uh, my dad, so that's my grandpa, that he used to be able to drill the hole in the ice to go ice fishing with one arm. And my nephew's like, how did he do that? And my mom's like, I have no idea. <laughs> so so no, yeah. I'm nearly 50. And I'm still hearing stories. Stories I've never heard before and these little pieces that you try to to put together to try to truly understand a person and what they were like and and I don't know what what that is I don't know why it is that that's so important that I feel like I I want to know my ancestors I want to know their stories I want to feel them close to me and I, I just take such comfort in that I know I, I I do as well and for me there's very few relatives left for for me to connect with the losses that I've had in my family so when anything new comes up it's just like a hum- 
hummingbird moving in. It's just so precious. And I'm so alive with this tidbit of information. And I'm so grateful for it too, because it because of its rarity and how I think there's connections that we might not even be aware of when those things happen, because clearly there's an affinity that you have to, to your grandma. And it sounds like there's things in the way you describe her make me think of your resourcefulness and your sense to inner and outer and connections there. So there's a sense of kinship as well, the sense of how you've lived your life as well too, Jessica. So, so much packed in that. And, and what a lovely tribute to who she was. And I think, again, thinking about how the poem in this small space and encapsulate so much just as snow does and I think they're like these little engines of beauty and energy and can hold that and the gift that poetry can give us so thank you oh thank you are celebrating celebrating winter through poetry so not such a bad thing right and based on some things you were just saying I'm wondering because we're out of time but I'm wondering for next time if we want to think about family and and the ancestors we haven't really done too much there that might be a nice place to go next I think that's a great idea so stay tuned listeners we'll see you soon see you soon Catherine Graham is an award-winning writer and creative writing teacher living in Toronto Jessica Outram is a Métis writer and educator Coburg's fourth poet laureate and Assistant Principal of Indigenous Education. The music has been generously provided by Shannon Linton. Connect with us online at thehummingbirdpodcast.com.